Hey, it's Steph Dixon and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with Sophia and Maria Lee, two sisters and the co-founders of Stuart, using digital art to protect our natural world because there's no digital world without the natural one. Sophia Lee is an award-winning multimedia journalist and climate advocate. Haver named her one of the top climate communicators of 2002, and she's an ambassador for the United Nations Human Rights Division. She's also the host of Meta's podcast, Climate Talks, and was part of the founding team of Vogue.com. Maria Lee is the Chief Operating Officer for Tech in Asia, one of the leading digital media publications covering the Asia tech and startup scene. Prior to Tech in Asia, Maria worked at Apple as a business operations and commercial strategy manager and as an emerging markets consultant with Deloitte. In this episode, we talk about the climate funding gap, Web3 and blockchain for impact, the importance of an ecological currency, climate optimism, delaying and apathy, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this smooth conversation thanks to our sound partner, Audio-Technica. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. So Maria and Sophia, really excited to have both of you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. I would love to start with each of you sharing a little bit more about your journey and how it ended up with a passion for the planet. Sure, I'll kick off. So I'm Maria. I'm one of the co-founders of Steward, obviously, and then the CEO of Tech in Asia is my Dave job. So for me, my journey into climate, I think was actually a little bit delayed. A lot of my early career moves really focus on economic development and financial inclusion in emerging markets, which is how I ended up in Singapore working in Southeast Asia's tech and startup community. But I think a few years ago, you know, it really came to me that at the end of the day, like economic development and financial inclusion is nothing without climate. And climate is actually the number one foundational issue that kind of underlies a lot of the other social impact causes that I had previously been working on. And so I think with that realization, like basically if you're not secure in in your livelihood, then there's no point in opening up like a digital wallet, right? Like it just doesn't make sense. And so it became clear to me that like climate was basically that, yeah, foundational issue and the root cause of a lot of other things and that those economic inequalities and gaps would actually only get worse, the worse that the climate issue got. So yeah, so I basically started pivoting into thinking much more deeply about climate and what it really means and how to help local populations, especially in a region like ours in Southeast Asia, basically adapt and think about their paths forward. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. And Sophia? Mine was not that straightforward. (laughs) I say that everyone has a climate story and, you know, that climate story is a beautiful mix of your ideologies that you grew up with, your cultural and ancestral background, what you were naturally fascinated by as a kid. And that climate story on macro and micro levels really just impacts how you view your own relationship with nature. And that includes, you know, humans, we ourselves are nature. I think I've always had a very spiritual lens into how I lived life. And then my parents would always make fun of me because my dad's parents, so our grandparents, they're Buddhists and they grew up with these like very Buddhist ideologies. They wouldn't eat meat or our grandfather wouldn't eat meat. He wouldn't eat things like garlic and onions and little things like that. And just, I think climate was a huge part of that. It just was naturally ingrained that we have this like equilibrium and 
symbiosis relationship with nature. And that's how I always felt, even as a kid, I think very much because of my family and ancestors. And then also, I think also when you're, you have immigrant parents, sustainability is the norm. Like we still are very much sustainable. Like sustainability wasn't about like mason jars and toothbrushes. Sustainability was like, even today, my mom, she'll like have watermelon peels and pickle it so she can eat it and make sure that it's okay. And it's just those little moments that sustainability just is a necessity and is a norm when you're a first generation kid. And yeah, that's like deeply ingrained. And then I got into the climate justice stuff. But from a personal lens, that was kind of how I felt about it. Mm, yeah, no, thanks for sharing. And so before we dive into all the amazing work you guys are doing now, I just want to zoom out and look at the bigger picture here. So we're going to be talking obviously about the digital landscape, but why right now is it at odds with nature? Yeah, so the digital world is at odds with nature right now because of this massive funding gap. And this climate funding gap, basically all of global philanthropy, less than 2% goes to the climate which is kind of insane if you think about it, less than 2% and also climate is the least charitable cause of any cause. So this massive climate funding gap really just impacts everything. And I think you see studies that show that we think that the climate crisis is our greatest threat, yet we're not funding it. And then you see stories of how Meta has already spent $36 billion on building the metaverse. You see how investors are trying to invest millions into virtual land and to protect and to have virtual land in the metaverse when our natural land isn't even protected, our carbon sinks. And, you know, like, why build lush forests in the metaverse when our lush forests in this world isn't even protected? And then you start reading the IPCC reports and each of them always talks about climate funding and how it's it's like just something that is constantly a need. So much so that actually one of the last IPCC reports said that all climate solutions exist. They just need 10 times more funding. UN climate scientists came out and said that they just need $300 billion to start reversing the climate crisis. Um, and a lot of that should go towards the nonprofits and organizations that already exist conservations, indigenous organizations, et cetera. And 300 billion can seem like a lot numerically, but you know, the US government has spent triple that on the COVID pandemic. We've already spent more than that in many different scenarios because it was more immediate. And with Web3, there's so much capital and equity in it right now. And we're just like, how is it not being transferred into protecting our natural world? And at Steward, we always say, there is no natural world. As steward, we always say there's no digital world without a thriving natural world. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's so crazy because the numbers are there. It's very clear. They've done the math. As you said, 10 times more funding is required. The solutions already exist. We have a $300 billion funding gap. But how can we even begin to address that though? I mean, as you said, like only 2% of funding goes to, to the climate right now. So what big picture, like what can actually, what needs to happen for this to shift? Yeah. So, I mean, I think two of the big problems that we're working on is of course, like number one awareness. And so if you think about what both Sophie and I do, it's like a lot of it has to do with like media and information sharing and storytelling. And so a lot of it is awareness. And then a lot of it is then the second bit of that is like mindset shift. Right. And so again, 
the funding's there, the technology's there. It's actually just about marrying those two together. And so it's about telling the stories in a way that impact people and have them also believe that they can make small marginal contributions to actually make a huge difference. So I think, you know, I mean, curious here to stuff what, what you see, but like, I think sometimes people think about like when they're thinking about being more sustainable or like investing in climate or whatever it might be, it feels like this like big, scary thing. It's going to be like a dramatic life shift as opposed to like just a bunch of small micro actions on a day to day basis that they can take. And honestly, like would not affect their quality of life at all. And in fact, probably improve it in many ways. So I think that there is a lot of information that we are trying to translate. And then also kind of break away from this idea that the digital and natural worlds necessarily need to be at odds, right? Because again, it's one of the goals in the metaverse is basically replicate the experiences that you can have in the natural world already. You know, like why can't we bridge those two a little bit better so that people who value both and want to play in both worlds can basically come together and it's not really all one or the other, right? The dystopian ideas of only living in the metaverse and just like coming up for air like once in a while. I mean, I just don't think that that necessarily needs to be our future. I think we can have a well-integrated, incredible, like there are some real benefits of doing certain things in the metaverse. I'm not going to lie. So, but like at the same time, yeah, you can't access any of that without taking care of our natural and physical world. So we have a slightly different view as to how the two different worlds can work together. And we're just trying to like share our perspective and maybe point to like a slightly different path than what's being, what you're currently seeing in the media or like what people are currently talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so before we deep dive into exactly what it is that you guys are doing, I just want to zoom out a little bit and maybe Maria, you can share a definition of what we're actually talking about when we're talking about Web3 and decentralization and all of these buzzwords, blockchain and even like the metaverse. So like what is an easy way to sort of explain all of these technologies to people? It's interesting because so Web3 more commonly refers to the category of technology with on-chain technology in particular. And so what people are thinking about, and then this kind of expands out into like the AR, VR, metaverse, metaverse space. But at its core, blockchain technology is a, you know, digital process, digital system where you basically can create like immutable transactions and ledgers, right? And so basically you can capture information for one time and, and it's permanently stored within that sort of like digital, that's the foundational technology. What's given rise to is a whole new set of other opportunities. So like crypto, Bitcoin in particular is one, but then a lot of the other blockchains in Ethereum was the first basically like non-crypto focused one where you can have, you have a lot of other accessibility and, you know, the opportunity to do like decentralized finance and opportunity to create NFTs. A lot of new opportunities is building upon that like fundamental technology of, of blockchain. So I think when people think about Web3, they're thinking about living in that virtual world that's a little bit disconnected from like our current world of like nation states, right? There's a lot of borders to cross, but like you can actually go into that virtual world where things are kind of like a lot of our normal borders and, and barriers are kind of broken down and we're rethinking what society might look like within that virtual world, which has been where metaverse comes up because you're like, okay, great. If I can just like log into some virtual environment, then I can have these totally different experiences in the virtual world than my, than my natural world. Mm. hope that made sense. Yes. No, thank you. And Sophia, I read that you actually said that the most decentralized system is nature, not Web3. So can you unpack this a little bit for us? Yes. And 
so how I describe Web3 is Web3 is the third iteration of the internet and Web1 was reading. Web2 is read and write, you know, like social media, Wikipedia, and Web3 is read, write, and own. And it's all decentralized. Like ownership is decentralized. And yes, decentralized is very much a buzzword, but we're, we're in systems that are decentralized all the time. And we just like maybe aren't as conscious of it. But that ownership is like we co-own. So when you post something on Instagram, just because it's a picture of you and your face doesn't mean you necessarily own it. Meta has ownership of it. And, you know, we know who the big tech companies are that owns our data and our content. And so when you talk about decentralized ownership and a decentralized system, I love to look at nature like the mycelium network is a super decentralized system. Our bacteria system that's in our bodies right now is super decentralized and they all co-own, you know, and they work together if a virus comes in or the mycelium network. If you read like the secret life of trees, there is all these communication nuances where everyone co-creates and is part of this system that they all support. And there's no hierarchy level there. So, you know, if one tree is becoming sick or one tree needs more water through the mycelium network, trees through roots, they'll be able to like pump more water or nutrients into that tree specifically. So everyone just is accountable for and taken care of. So that's why I think nature is the most decentralized system. Mm, you know, beautiful. I love those analogies and very clear way of thinking about how, like what decentralization actually means as a concept. So with everything we've shared so far, where do you see the potential? Because I think a lot of people, when they hear NFT still, when they hear the metaverse, they're like, okay, this is all buzzy. This is, you know, like they don't really get how this can actually help to solve for some of the problems in the world. So I think looking through an impact lens, can you share what got you both excited about this technology to then to want to actually build something using it? Yeah. So there's obviously no doubt that Web3 is very, very early stages. And I think all the crazy fluctuations and the crashes and the, and the booms that you've heard in the last, you know, two years, five years even is really indicative of just how early and how honestly shaky a lot of the core technology and the, some of the foundational values are. But if I look back at the Web2 space, cause I mean, this is where I'm most familiar in terms of with tech in Asia. I think what happened is that similar thing, like during the dot-com boom, a lot of people were like, this is a fad. You know, there were a lot of scams. People lost a lot of money on it. And I think a lot of people stayed out of that space. But who went in were honestly like white tech bros. And then when that technology stabilized and people started to understand the foundational business models that could be built on top of that new technology, they were also the population that like, indiscriminately uh, benefited from that, right? So like, that's where you got a lot of, I think, income inequality. And you saw that that disparity between who benefited from the web two like digital startup boom versus who, who got left out. And so I think with web three, just because it's new and a little bit shaky, I think we still have, I mean, I feel like we still have an obligation to tr- figure out how to build upon it and how to kind of shape it. Like there's no better time, I think, than in the very early stages to be able to carve out like a slightly different path for it. And we can talk about this later in terms of we've made some very intentional decisions with Stuart that's very much bucking like the the Web3 hype space because we just feel like that doesn't need to be what Web3 is defined by, even though that is the majority of what you've seen. And a lot of the reasons that we wanted to do Stuart so early on and frankly, 
before, I mean, we're learning as we go. We know very little about, uh, about the Web3 and NFT space, but it's because I think we want to bring a lot of people who look like us into the Web3 space so that we're not left out of this next economic boom. I think there's no doubt that at some point Web3 is going to become like a fun foundational technology for our world. It's going to make, you know, there's a huge amount of like business like business killing to be made here. And, and it's just not, it doesn't feel right to kind of, it doesn't feel aligned, I guess, to be, to be left out, like willingly left out of that sort of, of economic growth and development again. And so it's a lot about, you know, bringing communities. So primarily women and minority folks who have gotten left out before by the past tech revolutions, trying to bring them forward into this one, just learn at the beginning. And then, but like, by the time it really kind of hits its stride and it's really growing and like there's mass adoption, you already know what's going on. You have a little bit of stake in the game. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. So then kind of share with us what is Stuart and what is the big vision? What are you guys actually doing? I was doing research for Stuart and I found all these headlines from the 90s that were like, thousands of people quit the internet. The internet is over. <laughs> I'll have to send you those links. I just thought that was so funny because, you know, like at that time, I'm sure people were like, yeah, the internet is over. And so it's super easy to vilify new tech because it's changed and it's unnatural and it's uncomfortable. I even remember when the iPhone came out and everyone's like, no, Blackberry for life. So what Stuart is doing is that, you know, we're building a collective, we're building a community, and we're really just trying to tell the Web3 space that climate needs to be part of the foundation of Web3 or else Web3 cannot even exist. And that that basically happens with closing this climate funding gap and make sure that climate is always considered when building on chain. And Stuart's first iteration is a digital art collection, previously known as NFTs. And the digital art connection is basically it portrays the eight major ecosystems of nature, which is like the taiga, the tundra, desert, tropical rainforests, and so on. The eight major ecosystems is connected directly to eight global artists. All of them have never designed or created an NFT before. So this is their first time. They're all independent artists. And then the eight major ecosystems paired with the eight global artists are also matched with a climate nonprofit working in the conservation and indigenous space. And they also directly work in that ecosystem. So for example, Tropical Rainforest is connected to this organization called the Articulation Peoples Indigenous of Brazil. It's AP, APEB for short. And the woman who start who heads up this nonprofit is the first indigenous congresswoman of Brazil that Lula appointed after he got reelected. So she is major. She speaks headlines at COP, every COP conference. And she's just like the mother of the climate movement and the mother of so many indigenous communities. And her organization is like for tropical rainforest because of the Amazon is the one that Stuart is supporting. Another example is the tundra, which is like Alaska. It's like one of the coldest biomes. And we have the Native Conservancy there. And the Native Conservancy is an indigenous group that works in Alaska. And they do habitat restoration and also just equity for their indigenous communities. We focus a lot on conservation and indigenous groups because there's a statistic about indigenous communities, which is that 
the world's population comprises of less than 5% of indigenous communities, yet they protect over 80% of our land's biodiversity. So then from there, we go, because of the on-chain technology, we have the royalty scheme, which Maria will talk more about because she was like the mastermind behind this royalty scheme. And really, it just makes sure that the climate is being funded, independent artists are being funded, and we're trying to bring a lot of Web2 people into this equity transition. But yeah, Maria, tell us about the royalty scheme. Yeah, sure. So like I said earlier, we wanted to do Web3 a little bit differently. I think when we first started building, we were in the middle of that crazy hype cycle, you know, where it was like NFT collections were dropping like every whatever. And then people were doing like all these crazy things. And people were talking about like, you know, to the moon and hyping and aping and whatever. And we actually felt like we couldn't keep up. We felt like we were drowning and just like so overwhelmed, even though we had already decided to build in this space for the reasons I said earlier. And we were like, you know what? We just have to like buckle down and like learn this space because it's really important and we need to, you know, we just need to try. But it was incredibly overwhelming and intimidating. And so I think at some point, a few months into the project, we were just like, this is dumb. Like we're trying to play their game, you know, the web three game that that wasn't, that's not aligned to how we do things. And so we paused and we're like, let's, if we're going to do this project, we should do it our way. And then through that came like a number of really critical decisions. So our goal is to, is to basically leave a blueprint for a different type of, of a web three project. So certain things that we did royalties were really, really protective of that. So in the primary sale, so the first time that the digital art goes on sale, we have a really high split. So 40% of the all proceeds will go straight to that nonprofit that each piece of digital art is connected to 20% will go to that particular artist. Even for resales, like royalties usually cap out at like five, five-ish percent, but people are actually there. You're, you're seeing the rise of a lot of platforms where there's zero royalties, which is so terrible because it means that they're not donating back to the artists that like had originally, originally created that work. So in our royalty scheme, any, for any secondary sales and subsequent trades, 8% of those proceeds go to that particular nonprofit and full 1% goes to that artist so that they will continue to benefit and make money as you know, hopefully the, the overall art collection like becomes more valuable and more popular and thus can actually generate more, more money as well. So again, it's like, it's like creating a bit of a Robin, like a built in Robin Hood effect where if you're doing well for the actual digital art collection, that nonprofit and that original artist will automatically benefit and be able to participate in the upside. So we're redistributing the equity and thinking about it instead of just, I think the more traditional capitalistic way, which is like, this is my asset. You know, regardless of whose backs I built it on or like where that value came from, I get to collect all the funding from it. So royalties was certainly one. And then I think the other thing that we really slowed down for ourselves were actually the seasonality of this. And so we were thinking, because like one thing that collections do is that you'll you'll have subsequent release and drops. And then we're like, okay, like, and the one other thing was like our dynamic art. So for every piece of digital art, it's tied to a unique location around the world obviously within the ecosystem that's representing. And so that if it's raining in wherever, in, in that actual real world location, you'll see it raining reflected within your artwork. So we want to create that like more of an immediate tie to actually what's happening in that particular point of the world. So then we were thinking like, okay, what does that seasonality look like? Right. And we were like on originally on NFT timeline, you're like, okay, so seasonal, like we should basically have this plant go through a whole season in like two weeks time because otherwise people are going to get bored. And that was like, wait, that just doesn't make sense, right? Like we're trying to tie people into the natural world. And so we actually, we're just sticking with regular seasons. 
which means that you'll actually see the plant growing in a typical like three month cycle. You'll be able to see the real time weather reflected in it. And hopefully at the end of the year, you'll be able to watch this like plant kind of like go through its actual full cycle. Yeah. So I think these are some of the decisions we made in order to combat the hype of Web3 and set things back at a much more natural pace, but then also keep it interesting enough, of course, that like, you know, that we're actually creating value and we're creating that like financial and economic gain back to a lot of the people who who benefit most from it. Yeah. I mean, the social equity pieces is beautiful. I think that's a really great foundation that you're building on, especially because of, you know, the mission and and why you sort of wanted to start and, and, you know, help to onboard more people into this space and then actually like live and breathe that by supporting, you know, the social impact side. And then I just love the dynamic element. Like I remember the desert one is the one that I'm obsessed with and I can't wait to get one. I hope I get a desert, but yes, exactly. But with this conversation, often comes up that blockchain has a very bad and big environmental impact. And we all know this is not true in all cases, but it does. It is something that still, unfortunately, people have a big misconception about. So how did you navigate this and how are you addressing that within your project as well? Well, I was saying we're the Neopets of climate. We're the Tamagotchis of climate. That's a fun way to put it. Okay. Energy. Well, all blockchains are not created equal and I think even just two years ago, that was very much misconstrued. You know, we have proof of work, we have proof of stake, we have proof of history. We don't need to get into all of that, but just know that all blockchains are not created equal, just like anything else. So it's not a binary. And if you choose a proof of stake blockchain, we are building on Celo, which is proof of stake. And ever since they launched as a blockchain three years ago, they have also been carbon negative. They do their offsets with this, this nonprofit called REN Project that does agroforestry. And just, we actually did the energy calculations, our team did, and we found out according to US energy standards, one Celo transaction is the equivalent of to Google searches or half the energy jewels of one Visa transaction. So like one credit card use. So one seller transaction specifically is 3,013 jewels. So Maria can go into how we like navigated the, the blockchains, but that's, yeah. Yeah. This was a really touchy subject in the beginning, especially. And I think when people first heard about it, like the, the, hate DMs we got um, about it were, were quite strong. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Every time we post about it, people would be like, how can you, you know, they basically, they thought we were frauds or like, just like trying to piggyback off of a trend or yeah. I mean, or that it was a scam anyway. So, so I think that again, this goes into the education piece. I think, you know, Bitcoin does use a ton of energy and actually Ethereum in its previous iteration before the merge also did use a ton of energy. Those systems were actually designed to use a ton of energy because they were proof of work. And so one thing that we were really careful about was to basically only evaluate proof of stake blockchains because that already reduces energy usage by like 99%. And then even once we kind of went there, there were a lot of like other chains like the likes of Solana. Polygon is a bit of a like a special case because it's layer two on Ethereum. And so you do see a lot of climate climate focused projects building on Polygon. But for us, and again, back before the merge where Ethereum was able to massively drop their energy usage, 
it would still indirectly contribute to the problem. You know, like even though you weren't directly contributing to that layer one, even as a layer two, you were kind of indirectly. And so we didn't feel great about that. And so it really came down to for us between Solana and Celo. And Solana, because it's proof of stake, the we knew that the energy usage was like acceptable and I think like quite manageable for most and we could we could explain why we were building on Solana, but when we talked to the team, it just felt like, you know, they had an amazing marketplace, an amazing community, but it felt like climate was kind of an afterthought for them. Like they lucked into a low energy, low energy transaction, but as opposed to like really intentionally focusing on it. And I think that intentionality that we saw from Celo in particular was, was really critical. So we had this like whole criteria list. We basically, you know, like whittled down from the beginning, but I think at this point it's, it's on us to, to do a lot of that education. People love to pick up sound bites. Of course, like this is not just in the web three space, but people love to pick up sound bites and, and try to tear you down for it. But I think, you know, it's part of it's, I mean, I kind of welcome it as like part of the ongoing conversation that we all need to be having in order to make sure that um, we're all going the right direction. And so, yeah, it's about accountability and information sharing and discourse at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's fantastic that you were really thorough about it and also focused on the intentionality behind the blockchain because I think, yeah, that that just really, again, just solidifies the impact and the, yeah, the mission of the project. So I think, yeah, it's really great that thank you for explaining as well, like all the different other chains as well. So people have a bit of a deeper understanding. So what role or part of the solution does regenerative finance play in all of this? Yes. Regenerative finance is a huge topic. I'm not the expert in it, but basically, okay, regenerative finance, the way I think about it is our capitalistic system basically only ever captures like financial value, I think, in our currency and how we evaluate different projects and economic returns and all of that, right? So if you remember in high school econ, there was all of these like public externalities, like the negative cost of doing things that's never factored into the price of the good that you're producing or the service that you're producing. So regenerative finance tries to take a more holistic view of the overall space. And then so that your asset or your currency is taking into consideration a lot of the cultural, social, and environmental impact that you have. So it's a much more like broader way of looking at what is value. And it sounds kind of crazy, except to think like, you know, just over a decade ago, like Bitcoin did kind of redefine how we view currency and like it is possible to create a virtual currency. So refi takes that one step forward. So the reason the Web3 space is really important to this movement is because that blockchain technology, now you can actually track a lot of the value and a lot of the movements, which previously wasn't possible. So it, it kind of gives, ReFi exists outside of the Web3 space, but Web3 seems like it's going to be like that that tool or that product and technology that really drives ReFi. So for us, I mean, like, I think same thing, like a lot of what Celo is trying to do. And one reason that we went with them is that they're actually trying to link a lot of the, they're trying to use nature backed assets to drive a lot of the value of that Celo, of their Celo coin in particular. So that's like a step towards refi. And then similarly, same thing is, you know, like when we're talking about the resale value or the, the value of the digital art that we're producing, it's not just the value of like what you as an individual owner will get, but also the value of like what the artists get, what the nonprofit get. So we are taking a lot of the core concepts of refi and kind of expanding it and building it into how we're running steward and for sure the blockchain that we're, we're working with. It's kind of crazy to think that how our current financial system works. Like the USD is backed by gold, but it hasn't technically been backed by gold for decades. And then all other countries, global countries, just 
works off of the USD that so it's the financial value that Maria was talking about. There's also ecological value. So that's like goes into the nature backed currencies. And I just remember at COP27 listening to this scientist talk about how if countries determine their financial wealth and their currency based off of how much carbon they were able to sequester. The Bahamas would be one of the richest countries in the world because they have a lot of wetlands that sequesters carbon. But yet Bahamas is one of the most, (laughs) it's not one of the, it's um, on the lower end because of the financial currency. So it's like ecological currency and value is just as important. And I think that's, that has always been the case before global finances became the norm. Like when we used to barter and trade, that was always considered like the financial value of it. And also the labor and the work it took for you to hunt down this animal and trade it, you know, but you know, now that will actually be considered. So I don't think it's that radical at all. I think it's actually just the 21st century way of approaching something that we've always done considering a holistic value sense. Yeah. And hopefully we're going to be seeing this more and more as we progress because we're really, you know, we're running out of time. There is a pressure cooker in in a sense, and we need to start actually attributing the true cost of production, the true cost of items in our society, both from a social and environmental impact so that we actually can start to mitigate and start to shift the balance and the way that things are done. And so that sustainability and impact become the norm. And that's what we live and breathe. So yeah, I'm very excited about everything you guys are working on. And I think it's, it's a beautiful way to onboard people both, as you said, into this Web3 blockchain space, but also to show people how things can be done differently. And I think we need more of that and and more in that positive way. And I know, Sophia, you also talk a lot about being a climate optimist, even though you're very well-versed and you know really a lot about what's going on. You've gone to COP, you go to all the conferences, and it can be quite overwhelming. And I think it can cause a lot of doom and gloom. And also, especially at some of those conferences, the lack of action and the backtracking of governments, I think can cause quite a lot of yeah pain and frustration in a lot of people. So how do you stay climate optimist and what actually keeps you positive and keeps you going in the work that you're doing? Yeah. So I think that a lot of people think that climate optimism is kind of like toxic positivity. But if you're not a climate optimist, you're either a climate pessimist or a climate apathetic, like you're in climate apathy. And if you're in apathy, you're actually the majority of Americans right now. There's a study from the Yale School of Climate Change where the majority of people aren't climate deniers. 70% of Americans are climate delayers where they're in apathy because they have kids to raise and food to put on the table and jobs to go to. They know that the science is real, but they're just so overwhelmed by the information. And I think that to be in climate apathy is actually a huge privilege. A lot of people say to work in the climate space and to go to climate protests and to do this is a privilege. But I actually think to not do anything about it and be a climate delayer or be in climate apathy is the privilege part, if you talk to anyone on the climate front lines, if you talk to land defenders, you've talked to the true activists organizing, they are all climate optimists because they're not talking about 10 years out from now. They're literally talking about tomorrow. If you talk to someone from Marshall Islands, like they're literally talking about their home tomorrow and you have to be optimistic. It's the only choice. And I just, I think that the doom and gloom 
is something that the Western media paints because it reaffirms the apathy, which kind of makes people be like, well, if we're, if we're already doomed, then all right, I guess I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to live my life and enjoy what I can. And it reaffirms and perpetuates the apathy because you think you get, you have like, you know, like a get out of jail free card where you don't have to do anything if the world is ending. And I think after the last IPCC report, how they were saying we have no warnings left. There was a lot of media headlines that were like, okay, so we're already reached the climate climax. And it's like, no, like there is still time. If we can even change a point zero one degree Celsius, that is hundreds of thousands of lives saved that we're talking about. So I don't, there's such a nuance there that I, I don't believe in climate doomism. I don't believe that it's too late because it can never be too late because we're literally talking about lives on the line here. So even, you know, a point zero 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 one degree change that will still impact lives. So are you going to choose to fight for it or are you not? And I thought about this earlier where like, whenever you do have an emergency, like I was saying how my fiance is a first responder. And if a building is on fire, they're not like, well, the building's already on fire. We can't really do anything. No, they're like, we're going to do everything we can to go in there and still save lives and do as much as we can. So it's like, just because we're in a dire situation doesn't mean that there's not so much work to be done. And, and I just think that action is the antidote to anxiety here. Absolutely. I think I, <laughs> I just love that analogy so much. And I think it's so true, you know, and people really do use it as a cop out, the apathy, and just as a reason for them not to actually change and to do anything. So aside from sharing those great analogies, what do you say to people? They're like, oh yeah, but my individual actions don't matter. Because I feel like this is still unfortunately quite a prevalent dialogue, especially with people who aren't working in this space or who haven't sort of like are not on the climate optimism side yet. Yeah. So when people say my individual actions don't matter, I always ask them like, I question their kind of belief systems in the world. So I'm like, do you believe that one person can make a difference? And they usually say yes. And if they say no, I'm like, okay, well, look at our last president, look at our current president. Like they made a lot of a difference. It doesn't have to be good or bad. Like they're on both ends of the spectrum. Right. And usually people are like, yes, I believe that one person can make a difference. And I'm like, well, there you go. Like, well, you can be that one person. And I actually love to refer to this study by Erica Chenoweth. She's a professor at Harvard. And she found that it just takes 3.5% of society to mobilize social change. And that's what happened with the Philippines freedom moment. That's what happened in South Africa, 3.5% with civil disobedience, like just galvanizing change. Like that's nothing. So it doesn't even need to be everyone involved. It's just like, I think we're already there at the 3.5%, like more than that. And also, it, and then if I have this conversation and they still are in the belief system and they're still in denial, I'm like, okay, you know what? You need to go on your own journey and I'm going to have this conversation with you, but I'm actually going to focus on people who are like ready. They want to do something because there's so many more people who are that too. I'm not going to try to convince them that, yeah. Yeah. So. No, time and resources are precious and we need to focus on those that we can actually shift the ones that are on the fence or the ones that are, you know, like uh, nearby. But yeah, no, I completely agree not to waste time and resources on the people that really are just very stubborn and they're just too far away from it. So it's, yeah, you can just have so much more impact with those that are in that middle phase. So yeah, I think there's some great sharings there. Thank you. 
And I do have to ask because you guys are obviously sisters. You're on the other side of the world and now you're in business together. So I'm so curious, like how that journey has been for you both. So I don't know, Maria, maybe you want to share. I think it's been an amazing journey. There have been obviously highs and lows. I mean, to be, to be honest. So like the lows, we do slip into our sister dynamic sometimes. So like we'll be on our overall team calls and there's like our, our full like core team of like six to seven people, whatever. And then we'll slip into our dynamics where like I'm the bossy, overbearing older sister. And then Sophia's like the creative, floofy younger sister. I'm like, Faye, can you please just get shit done? Like, come on. And then I think so like we have brought that dynamic in at times. And I think it's not like that's actually not ideal, but we've had some really healthy both arguments and then healing sessions, I think around that, where we're not trying to bring, we're like, we agree that we can't be bringing like our childhood issues and our childhood like behavior patterns into, into like, I mean, just into our adult life for sure. But then even into this project in particular. So there have been moments where, yeah, of, of that friction, but I think it's actually been incredibly good. But then on the, on the high point, actually, it's been amazing to watch Sophia work in a, professional context, even though it's a bunch of friends working on this together. She definitely makes decisions very differently than I do. For her, it's all about like, are we energetically aligned? Is like our attentions and and all like, are we all sorted? And so, and I'm much more rational, like, you know, like let's do the, what makes sense economically, what makes sense financially, like whatever. And so it's actually been really amazing, I think, to, to see her approach some of the questions that and I, I would say even though we end up usually at the same result, but it, the path to get there is incredibly different. And I've actually gained a huge amount of respect, I think, for for how she works in the professional context just by seeing how she gets, gets shit done. So, yeah, it's been both. It's been amazing overall. And I think it's been an incredible learning experience. And it makes our mom so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so happy. Oh, I'm blushing. You can't tell because it's dark in here. But Mm -hmm. no, I loved it. I think it's so fun. I've always been that little sister who is like, Maria, be my best friend. Like when we were younger, I was like, be my best friend, be my best friend, be my best friend. She's like, oh, little sister. I'm like, no, be my best friend. And no, she truly is my best friend. And it's so fun. We also get to work with our other best friend, Lydia, paying on this, uh, who's our other co-founder. And I think our dynamics and our (laughs) approach in life and how we it has actually been a great equalizer and it's balanced it out very well. And I think just we need her rational and logical mind. And then sometimes we need like my more like free willing spirit. And I think together, like we definitely wouldn't have been able to do this project on our, I wouldn't have been able to do this project on my own hundred ten percent. So it's been such an incredible experience. Like I'm like, even if, nothing happens except for we donate funds to climate nonprofits. And we had this experience. I'm like, this was worth it 10 times over. Like it's been so meaningful in so many, many, many ways in that sense. So beautiful. And yeah, I had a a feeling it would be like very healing and challenging at the same time, but it sounds like, you know, you balance each other out and there's yeah a lot of growth and connection and, and depth to your relationship, which is, yeah, just fantastic to hear. So what are some of the practices that keep you guys sane and that keep you going? Like, do you, yeah. Well, honestly, sleep. (laughs) I'm a big sleeper. I think that, yeah, I think really sleep is like my superpower. I think anything that has to do with upkeeping my spirit is a big practice of mine. I meditate every day, almost every day. I really try not to miss meditation or 
or maybe I do a little breath work, getting in touch with my ancestral altar. It's like, there's a lot of spiritual things that I do that I think just is just like helps me be, stay grounded and be aligned. And yeah, and sleep is really one of the big main ones. (laughs) For me, I, one thing that I have found is I get the most tired and fatigued and dissolution actually when I'm working on things or working on things in a way that isn't aligned to who I am. So I actually try to bring like that honesty and my perspective into every, anything that I'm doing. So like before taking on big projects, I make sure that that like, it's actually something I want to do. And so I don't get stuck in something that's like not bringing me that, that joy and energy and reward that otherwise is. And then even when I'm on those projects, I just am try, I try to be true to myself. So I think when I get feel most frustrated or most burnt out is when I feel like I'm kind of suppressing a part of myself. Like maybe I'm not like voicing out my, my true concerns or I feel pressure to be a certain way. So I think that helps me from actually really ever dipping too low in terms of the energy bucket. Like it helps me maintain energy to just be really, really honest and true to myself, like in most situations and contexts, in every situation and context possible. And then I think beyond that, it's actually taking, taking time and hanging out with my kid who is, you know, like amazing and incredibly restored to just like go hang out with like a two-year-old for an hour or two and then just like see the world through their view, through their eyes. And, and, you know, everything's like fun. Everything's exciting, including like picking flowers or like picking up leaves from the sidewalk. So anyway, so I think I've also make sure to, to build in those moments where it's not just work, but really thinking holistically about like, okay, what, what do I need as an individual? What do my husband and I need as a couple? And then what do I need? And like spending time with my kid as a mother and child. And so there's a lot of balance, I think in my life, which also just, yeah, helps me like maintain and preserve my, my energy and sanity level. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. And just, yeah, I think as, as we grow up, cause I, I went through something similar with finding that there, that I was feeling so burnt out and exhausted because I was doing things that weren't aligned anymore. And just like the, the crazy depletion that you have when that happens and just making better choices and realizing what lights you up and following that more and doubling down on that, I think is, yeah, that's such a beautiful practice. And yeah, so lovely that you have your family time and balance as well. So how do you both think that we can live wide awake? How do we live wide awake? I think getting in touch. I think we're very disembodied as a society and that makes us disassociated from hard things like the news cycle, the climate crisis. And so to live wide awake is to first to become more in embodiment with yourself and the source, which is nature. And like Maria was saying, like to view life through a kid's eyes, they're just naturally connected to that source. They're naturally have that sense of awe and wonder. And we can all have that. It's just because we're adults doesn't mean we can lose that. So I think in order to live more wide awake is to become more embodied. Love it. Maria? For me, it starts with a high degree of self-awareness and honesty. So I guess to echo a bit of what Sophia was saying, it's you know, don't shy away from some of the harder problems or some of the more difficult, like even internal conflict that you might have, like you don't know how you feel about a certain thing. And then also don't be shy about, you know, mistakes you're making along the way. I think people do feel pressure to present a certain way or project a certain way. If it's at odds with what you're actually genuinely feeling or what you actually believe, or if you, yeah, if you feel like, I mean, even in the sustainability space, it's like, if you feel pressure to, you know, to like, 
showcase that you're actually really sustainable, but you don't believe it. But like, I think that that level of self-awareness and honesty just kind of brings like the internal internal peace and balance. And it makes you so much more effective in, in anything that you're doing. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for spending this uh, public holiday with us <laughs> for recording. It was really wonderful to hear from both of you and, and all the great stuff that you're doing. Thank you so much, Steph. Awesome. Thank you, Steph. Three things I'm taking away from my conversation with Maria and Sophia. Firstly, the climate crisis is our greatest threat, and yet we're not investing in it. With only 2% of global philanthropy funding going to climate, we have to change this funding gap. Secondly, while Web3 is on shaky grounds, it is the next iteration of the web, and we have a window now to onboard those that would normally get left behind, and doing this through an impact lens has a lot of power and potential. Thirdly, all of our actions matter. It can never be too late because we're literally talking about hundreds of thousands of lives on the line. And action is the antidote to apathy. So let's continue to take action today. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake. Mm-hmm.